Well, good morning. Welcome to Harvest. My name is Pastor Micah. So glad that you're here to worship with us today. And uh, we're going to continue to worship the Lord through the study of his words. So if you want to grab your Bibles with me, uh, we'll do that now. If uh, you're a guest with us today, we're really glad that you're here. And if we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. We would love to do that. Um, for those of you who are worshiping with us online, we're glad that you're here too. And if you need anything, just put that in the comments and we'll try to serve you as well. So a few months ago, uh, Courtney and I celebrated uh, our wedding anniversary, and we decided to take a little anniversary trip. Um, we do this every once in a while, just a couple days away, and sometimes when we're on those kind of trips, just me and her, we'll get a couple's massage. Um, that's not something I did pre-marriage. I never did a massage thing, but you know, when your wife wants to do a massage, you do a massage with her. So, so we do this, and what I've noticed when we've done this a couple times now is that anytime I get a massage, that there are parts of my body, there are points of pain and stress and tension in my body that I had no idea was there until somebody starts pressing on it, right? Like, I didn't know that was a thing until they start pushing down, and then all of a sudden you feel that pain, you feel that pressure. Well, the same thing happened to me last May in my heart and in my mind when I watched this video, too early, of a man's life being ruthlessly and brutally taken from him without any just cause. And I don't think it was just me. I think that event pressed on a point of pain in our country and in our society that many of us had maybe forgotten about or were oblivious to at the time. And I don't think it's just a point of pain for us. I think it's a point of pain for our God. And so for us as a church, we need to listen, we need to hear from God and hear from his word about how we should be responding to this issue in our society, how we should be pressing into this, because it doesn't just hurt us, it hurts him. So before we jump into the deep end today, let me give you a couple preliminary thoughts, because I know that the topic that we're about to walk through this morning is a... (laughs) multifaceted minefield. But I believe with the power of the Spirit, together as the church, we can have a conversation about this that helps us get our hearts aligned with the Lord on what this looks like. First thing I want to say is this. Some of you might be thinking, well, why now? It's been a few months. Why are you just now addressing this issue with our church, Micah? Well, the first reason is because when this all kind of came about again in our country this past spring, I was ill-equipped and ill-prepared to have this conversation. I was just late to the game. Like, I, I didn't know enough. I hadn't studied enough. I hadn't really looked at this deeply enough. And so I needed time to pray and read and study. I needed time to hear from the Lord in my own heart before I could speak responsibly and biblically on the ideas of racism and racial injustice. So I've just taken the last couple months just to do that. I've been studying, I've been praying, I've been reading. Because I wanted to make sure that when I spoke, it was a clear voice in the midst of the chaos and not just adding more noise to what we already hear all around us. Second thing, I can already see it in your eyes and in some of your postures, the tension that is washing over your body because in your mind you're thinking to yourself, We're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to talk about this in church. This is a political issue, and so we shouldn't be addressing it on a Sunday morning. And I want to challenge you this morning that 
I think it's, that's not true, first of all, and it's partially that mindset that has gotten us to the point that we're at now where we've released this and we're not dealing with it. Long before there was ever a government, there was a God who created all things and is sovereign over all things. Long before there were laws and rulings on how to deal with racism, there was a God who made every human in his own image and loves them dearly. Long before there was ever racism in America, there was a Savior who died on a cross for every single person regardless of their color. So long before this was ever a political issue, this was a gospel issue. This is a biblical issue. And unfortunately, the church, throughout the years, has forfeited their voice on this issue and has relinquished it to a government system that honestly does not have a true understanding of biblical justice. And so they're trying to address an issue that they're ill-equipped to address. So our duty as the church, the church of God, is to speak out and to step into this issue. And the third thing, let me say this, um, my goal today is not to address every social or cultural aspect of this issue. That would be impossible in the time that we have together. But rather, my goal is to outline a biblical view and response for us as believers. And I pray and I hope that those of you who have been coming here for a while, that you know me, you know my heart, you know my character, you know my track record in bringing you a biblical witness on whatever issue it is that we talk about. And so I hope that that will allow you to maybe pull back and lay down any defensiveness that you might have around this issue from whatever other voices you've heard and just allow me to try to bring you a clear biblical view on this, free of all those other encumberments. I'm trusting and I'm believing God's promise in 2 Corinthians 7.10 for us today that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We have and we have and continue to see the results of worldly grief on this issue all around us. We need to reach godly grief so that we can move forward in Christ without regret. Even then, I understand that this will take time and will take lots of conversations. One 40-minute message, hopefully it's 40 minutes, will not get this done. But I ask you, I plead with you, church family, that whatever you hear today, because you're going to hear some things today that I'm sure is going, are going to challenge you, are going to maybe even convict you. Maybe you're not going to like them because it rubs against the way you've thought or been taught previously. And I would encourage you, when that happens, don't pull away, don't retreat to your corner, don't put up the walls, press in to have conversations. Talk to your church family, talk to me, talk to your elders. Let's continue, to, we don't always have to agree on everything, but let's at least talk 
and try to move our viewpoint on this forward in a biblical way. So I encourage the conversations. I encourage that us as brothers and sisters in Christ can come together and talk about this in the days ahead and that this isn't a one-time shot. With the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ together can find unity and hope on these issues. So, with all of that backdrop, let's grab our Bibles, go to Micah 6, 6 through 8. Old Testament, back of the Old Testament, in the middle, little prophet, Micah. I didn't write this book, so this is not my thing, okay? Micah 6, 6 through 8 is where I want us to go today. And what you're going to see in this passage is this. I cannot rightly worship God without pursuing his heart for justice. I cannot rightly worship God without pursuing his heart for justice. Let me show you what I mean. Look at the verse. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Then the prophet responds to him. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Point number one today is simply this, how to worship God. That's what this section in Micah is all about. How do we properly worship? What is acceptable, pleasing, glorifying worship to God? The, the man asked, with what shall I come before the Lord? How should I bow myself? What does it look like to have acceptable worship? I think it's interesting that when he asks this question, he rightly acknowledges him, acknowledges him as the Lord. All capital letters. Do you see that in your Bible where it's all caps? I've taught this before, but in case you've missed it, when it's all caps, that is the proper name for God. That is Yahweh. And that name was thought to be representative of God's holiness. In fact, it was so holy that the Jews would not even say it. They would not even use his proper name when they talked about him because they didn't want to infringe on God's holiness. So he said, how do I worship the God who is holier than everyone? He says, the God on high. He's holier and higher than any other person, any other being. And so if that is true, how I worship him is of utmost importance. And so how do I do that properly? And then he starts listing off his suggestions. His list of offerings, could it be a burnt offering? Could it be calves a year old? Thousands of rams? Thousands of rivers of oil? Even my firstborn. He keeps increasing it with each suggestion. Higher and higher, more valuable and more valuable and more valuable. What's enough, God? How much do I have to give? What is the minimum that I have to reach in order to be good worship for you? That's what he's asking. How much is enough to buy, to earn God's favor and blessing? And the prophet then responds to the question. He says, first of all, he's told you. 
which tells me that there is an answer to this question, and God does have an opinion on how he wants to be worshipped. Here at Harvest, we oftentimes talk about vertical worship, that we want to be a church that worships God the way that he wants to be worshipped, not just the way that we want to worship him. It's not up to us. It's up to him. He says he's told you what is good, what is pleasing worship to the Lord. He's told you what is required, not optional, not you get to choose, not I'm going to leave it up to you, you kind of figure it out. No, I, I've got a way that I want to be worshipped, and I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. This is how you do it. What Micah shows us is that he doesn't just want us to go through the motions. He doesn't just want us to go through rituals and special practices. Worship of our God is not just singing or giving or praying or attending services or communion or baptism or serving. All those are great things and all those are important acts of worship to God, but those alone are not enough. Micah tells us that there's more that God requires. Three things specifically. The first one, he says, is to do justice. That's point number two. Do justice. Now, we need to understand justice and the meaning of it from a biblical perspective. So, justice in the Old Testament, when you see that word, which it's used a lot, is tied very closely to righteousness. It means that we are in both right standing with God and right standing with men. Both. Right with God and right with men. In fact, over 200 times in the Old Testament, justice refers specifically to helping the least of these. The orphans, the widows, the foreigners, the outsiders, those who are in the society somehow less able and therefore oppressed or hurt in some way. And it's interesting to me that it's not just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, Jesus ties this together when they ask him, what's the most important commandment? What's the, what's the highest commandment? He actually doesn't give them one. Ever notice he gives them two? <laughs> they ask for one, he gives them two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, okay, got that. That makes sense. And love your neighbor as yourself. So the biblical view of justice that God calls us to is actually much more robust and much wider than our typical American cultural view of justice. We think about justice in terms of a legal system, right? Justice is simply punishing people when they do wrong. That's how we think about justice. And it is that, but it's more than that from the Bible's point. It's not just Stopping the oppressor, it's helping the oppressed. It's not just me punishing wrong, it's helping those who have been wronged. It's a both and. Let me give you an example. I could give you a litany of verses on this, but I don't have time for that. Let me give you one. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Do you see it? He helps on top of stopping the wrong. Our culture and our society oftentimes thinks about these acts of giving food and giving clothing as acts of charity, right? And so therefore, if it's charity, it's optional. 
You can do it if you feel like it. You can do it if you have the extra or whatever, but it's not really required. But the Bible links these two things together in the way that it talks about justice, that we both stop the wrong and we help those who are wronged two in one, and that is our social obligation as we love our neighbors according to God's word. One scholar I read said it like this. He said, the Old Testament justice is not just putting down the oppressor, it's also helping lift up the oppressed. So clearly, for us to, according to Micah, for us to worship the Lord by doing justice means to speak up and stand up against injustice in our world. So if that's how we're supposed to worship God, how do we do that? <laughs> what does that practically look like for us today as Christians in 2020? How do I do justice against racial injustice? Well, first of all, I hope and I believe that we can all agree on at least one thing. The starting point is the fact that racism is sin. Period. End of sentence. And so because racism is sin, that has led many Christians to respond with, well, then the, the answer to racism is simply preach the gospel. Right? If it's a sin issue, we need to handle it like all other sin issues, which is preach the gospel, give them Jesus, call them to repentance, and let the Holy Spirit change their hearts, and then they'll no longer be racist. And yes, <laughs> that is absolutely right. That is the starting spot. Because racism is sin, and if we're going to deal with sin, we have to deal with the hearts of people. And because we know that racism is rooted in sinful hearts, we also know that the reality is racism will never be extinguished this side of heaven. Because as long as we're here, we're going to have sinful people with sinful hearts doing sinful things. And yet, even though both of those things are true, racism is a sin and we have to call them to repentance, and it's always going to be around because there's always going to be people who are unrepentant about their sin, even though those two things are true, the Bible here still calls us to do justice. So there's another step that because of the gospel, because of this call that we have on our lives, that we have to take in our response to the gospel, in our response to our worship of the Lord, and that means to fight against racial injustice. So I think that looks like this. Racism today exists on two levels. First, there's the personal level. You can actually skip that slide. We're not using that. On the personal level, we know what this is. Okay? We've seen this. Right? We, we know that sometimes people have racist hearts, sinful hearts, and they personally lash out against other people because of the color of their skin. We've seen that, we know it. it, even today we see it in pockets. And the answer to that le personal level is the gospel. It's salvation, it's repentance. And that's where we start. But there's a second level that we still have to deal with, I'm gonna call it the societal level. The societal level of racism exists in the fact that we still, that through certain laws and policies and practices and unwritten norms that have been established over generations, 
that racism is still allowed to exist and perpetuate because of the way these things are set up. You see, in the past, racism was in some ways ingrained into the policies and practices and norms of American life. Because all those things were created by humans who had sinful hearts and were racist at the time. And several of those things have been corrected, praise the Lord. We've changed laws, we've changed practices, we've, we've outlawed things, we've done things to advance that and to end some of that societal level of racism, but there are still some areas where it still exists. It hasn't been fully purged at the societal level of our country. But here's the catch to combating racism at societal level. Organizations and policies and norms can't repent of sin because they don't have it. Organizations don't sin. Policies don't sin. Norms don't sin. The people behind them do, but they don't. So we can't call the societal level to repentance and fix the problem. We have to have people like us who have hearts that have been changed by the gospel, who are repentant of our sin to step into that societal level and call out those injustices that we see and change the policies and change the norms and change the way that our society functions that is allowing racism to continue to perpetuate and even protect some of it in the, in the process. To overcome this more common and widespread level of racism, we have to have a more direct approach. Those of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ, who know the difference of the sin of racism, we must speak truth to power. It's a powerful phrase that someone shared with me a couple months ago, and I've been thinking on it a lot, I've been looking at it a lot. So let me kind of explain to you what I mean by that. First of all, speaking truth to power, we see it evidenced in the Bible. If you read the book of Isaiah, this is what the prophet of Isaiah did over and over and over and over again. He called out kings, he called out kingdoms, including Israel, for the wrongs in their society, and he called them to change their ways. He said to those in power, it's wrong, stop it. We saw Jesus do this in the New Testament with the Jewish leaders and with the Jewish religious system and the way that they were keeping certain people out and excluding others and treating others. He said, it's wrong, stop it and change it. So for us, many of us in this room at least, who are white Americans, we have a position of influence in this country that unfortunately our black brothers and sisters just don't have. And that's simply because we're the majority. The U.S. Census tells us that 76% of Americans are white, while only 13% are black. So just by the raw numbers of it, we have a larger level of influence. We have a bigger voice. We're going to automatically, statistically hold more positions of power in different organizations and groups because there's more of us. And that's not a bad thing. It's not something that we should feel ashamed of. 
It's not something that we should try to give up or throw away. I'm not saying any of that because some people take it to that level. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have this, and so we as Christians need to use it to call for biblical justice where we can. We need to stand up and say things that when our black brothers and sisters say them, get ignored because they don't have the same level of voice that we have. So we need to say it with them. We need to say it for them. The powers that be will listen to us because we're the majority culture. So we need to leverage that voice for the gospel. We have an obligation to love our neighbors by speaking truth to those in power so we can help them change and fight against injustice. So again, that's still somewhat on a high level. How do I do that personally? There's lots of ways you can engage with that. There's lots of ways that you can use your voice and your influence. Let me tell you one that I've been doing and maybe a couple other suggestions, and you have to work that out between you and the Holy Spirit. It's going to be different for everyone, and that's okay. But I'll say for the last couple of months, what God's been saying to me, the way I need to do this, is to just have a lot more conversations like this with my white brothers and sisters so that we can help each other find a more biblical view on this issue and not get swept into all the cultural arguments and political arguments and No, we we need a biblical understanding of this. And we're going to get that as we study, as we talk, as we challenge one another to look at this differently. And so the conversations that I used to shy away from, when somebody would bring up something about race or something that happened in our country, I'd be like, oh yeah, I hate that, it's horrible. So where do you want to go to dinner? (laughs) Like I just completely skirt it it, because it's uncomfortable and I don't want to talk about it. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm like, okay, okay, let's talk. Let's do it graciously, let's do it lovingly, but let's talk. So that's one way. Other ways might be just to speak up when you see someone who's being mistreated. We do see this. Maybe not every day, but we do see this. Somebody at work, somebody at your school, somebody at the store who gets mistreated or spoken to differently or or doesn't have the same opportunity, or is somehow pushed aside because of their race, just say something about it. Speak up to the boss, to whoever's in charge, to whoever's doing it. Whatever you need to do, use your voice. If you're a part of a company or an organization or a political party, talk to the leaders of that group. And when you see unjust practices in that group, say something to the leaders and tell them, this needs to change. It doesn't seem like a big step, but if enough of us do that, it will change. That's the whole point of our country, democracy, is that when we use our voice, things change. So let's do it for the gospel and for biblical justice. The more we speak up, the more people will change, the more society will change, the more racism can be squashed. We must do justice by speaking truth to power. Not just because everybody right now is doing it around us, and not just because it's the cliche thing to do right now, but because God says it's a part of our worship 
of him. Do justice. The next thing he tells us is required of worship is to love kindness. Still in verse 8, love kindness. Now the word kindness there in the Hebrew is hased. Okay? Hased is all throughout the Old Testament, and it usually is um, defined as steadfast love and loyalty towards someone. It's first and primarily used of God. That God has hased towards us, steadfast love and loyalty. Even when we were weak, even when we were lost in our sin, even when we were rebellious to him, he came and he loved us anyways. And he gave us steadfast love to call us to repentance and call us to himself. The second way that hased is used in the Old Testament and in the Bible is when it calls God's people to show the same loving kindness that God has shown to us to one another. To take God's said and share it and give it to each other in our relationships. And that's the way that Micah is using it here in verse 8 when he says love kindness. It's towards one another. Micah here is trying to command, uh, trying to tie this command to love kindness to the previous command to do justice. They go together. Part of our social responsibility that we have towards one another is to stand against injustice by being kind and loving and merciful towards those who are suffering. Showing them said To help them out of a heart of God's steadfast love towards them because they are his image bearers just like us. It doesn't matter what they've done or not done. It doesn't matter who they are or what color their skin is. They belong to God. And so our call is to love them. Kindness. Kindness. One commentator said, anyone who is in a weaker position should be delivered, not reluctantly, but out of a spirit of generosity, grace, and loyalty. Not reluctantly. Why? Because This is what God did for us. This is the heart of the whole gospel, that Jesus came to rescue us from our sin when we were too weak to rescue ourselves. And he didn't do it out of obligation. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it out of loving kindness. He did it out of hesed. And then once he comes and he calls us in and he saves us and we repent and we become followers of Christ, he turns around and he tells us, now, go do that for others. Go love your neighbor as yourself. If you were suffering, if you were hurting, if you were the one who was too weak to help the situation that you were in, you would want someone to come and help you. Jesus says, do that for one another. Paul says it too in Galatians 6.2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Even though it's not my problem, it is my problem. Because Jesus says it's my problem. To love kindness means to have steadfast love toward our fellow humans anytime they are suffering injustice regardless of who they are or why it is. So again, how do we do this? How do I love 
kindness in the face of racial injustice? Well, first of all, I think we have to realize that kindness is about people, not organizations, not ideas. You support your school, but you're not kind to your school. You work hard for your company, but you don't show mercy to your company. You shop at Target, but you don't have steadfast love for Target. Well, some of you do. But biblically, you get what I'm saying. Steadfast love, said, is directed to individuals. Real people with real lives, with real stories. And so in order for us to get this and do this, we have to hear and see the real people who are suffering in the midst of racial injustice. So to help us with that, I want to share a story with you today. Many of you know Leah Spiros. She's a member here at our church. She was on our praise team this morning. We love her. We're so thankful that she's here. And if you know Leah, you know that she's a very well-spoken put-together, gracious, intelligent, accomplished woman in our church who also happens to be black. She was sharing a story with me that she gave me permission to share with you. That a few years back, her mother had taken her out for her 34th birthday. They were having kind of a girl's day out to celebrate her birthday. And her mother wanted to buy her some new outfits as one of her gifts. And so they went to one of her favorite stores at Plaza Frontenac, and as they came into the store, they proceeded to browse and look at clothes and try clothes on and those kind of things, and the employees there started to aggressively question her and obsessively follow her around and harass her, implying that she wasn't actually there to buy anything, but rather to steal it. And it was so unwarranted, and it was so inappropriate and there was no signs of anything in her or the way she was dressed like, that would give any implication that that was true other than the fact that she was black. And the harassment became so strong and so overbearing that they ended up leaving the store and not purchasing anything. And as she was telling me this story while she's holding back tears, she said, Micah, I, I know what they were doing. I used to work in retail. And they would teach us that the majority of shoplifters were black. And so therefore, we need to be on the lookout for them. We needed to be more suspicious of them. And I can vouch for that. I used to work in retail too. And yes, that's what they taught us. That was the policy in the training manual. That's just straight up racial profiling and it's wrong. And I wish that that was an isolated story. I really do. But it's not. The more and more I talk with my friends who are black, some of them pastors, many of them in ministry, many of them Christians, I hear them share with me story after story after story after story of how they're still suffering from racism just like that. One who was stopped on his morning run outside of his seminary because it was in a white neighborhood and he wasn't. One, 
I've had several tell me stories of being tailed by police or being pulled over for offenses that white people never get pulled over for. Being harassed over writing a check at the grocery store when the person in front of them did the exact same thing with no problem whatsoever simply because their skin color is different. And I could go on and on and on and on. And by now, I'm sure we've all seen the videos of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and on and on and on. Lives, many of which were obviously, you can tell, were taken without any just cause, without any reason whatsoever that justified what happened. And what we need to understand about all this, whether we agree with the story or not, whether we like how it happened, whether, whatever the extenuating circumstances are, I don't care. These aren't just headlines, and these aren't just hashtags. These are real people with real lives who were made in the image of our God. And they deserve our loving kindness. So why do we so often not get there? Why is it that so often our kindness is blocked in this process? I believe it's because we feel like we have to choose sides. I have to pick a side, one or the other, and when I pick one side, I have to vilify the other side. Because if I'm going to stand with this group, then I have to detest and and tear down everything that that group says or does. And so I can't possibly be kind to anyone over there because they're not in my group. They're not on my side. And this picking sides and this vilifying of each other happens because of what we call confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when we are constantly confirming our opinions and our ideas with our own personal experiences. Let me give you an illustration. So Courtney, my wife, when she was a child, she had an incident where she had a really horrific spider bite. And so now, every spider in our house is from the pit and must die immediately. That's just reality. Now, in actuality, not every spider in our house is poisonous or hurtful, not, and all of them can even bite you. But it doesn't matter. Because the experience with one spider has now been generalized to all spiders, so now all of them are guilty and must die. We also do this with people. We take one or two or three personal experiences that we've had with one person that we think represents that group And then we take that and we wash it across all of the group as if they're all equally guilty. And that confirms our bias that our side's right and their side's wrong. And what I'm challenging you to this morning is that as Christians, as people who are people of the word, who are people of clear thought and minds, we have to have a more nuanced view 
We have to have a more nuanced thinking on these types of issues. It's not enough to just pick a side. We should be the ones who are standing up and calling out right and wrong on both sides. Because neither one of them gets it all the way right. We should show loving kindness to both sides. Loving kindness to suffering blacks who are being mistreated and loving kindness to good cops who are doing their job right. Both. We don't pick sides. This is not an issue of left and right for God. This is an issue of right and wrong. Don't let our culture push you to give more loyalty to either side than you do to God and his word. We're called to love kindness by lifting up those who have been pushed down regardless of who they are. And I don't have to agree with them to love them. We must love kindness by giving steadfast love to the powerless. So if we're going to be good worshipers, if we're going to be giving worship that God desires, we have to first do justice, second, love kindness, and then there's one more thing that the scripture tells us. Look at the last point. Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly means to live under God. Walk humbly means that God is first. God is first in his truth, in judgment, in allegiance, in everything. God is first. And if God is first, then I'm not. Right? I must accept his word. I must confess and repent when necessary. I must submit to his commands because he's first and I'm not. So I need to humble myself before him. Walking humbly also means to be teachable. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Friends, I hate to confess this, I hate to say this to us, but I think it's true. Our hearts and our minds are easily fooled into listening to to loud, unwise voices in our culture. And God says, if you want to walk humbly with me, you have to look carefully and understand my word and my walk and my will. Follow me, not the ways of the world. Walk humbly also means to conform to God's word, God's will, and God's ways. This is the simplest way I can say it. His voice must be the loudest voice in my life. If I want to walk humbly with God, his voice must be the loudest voice in my life. Not my voice. 
Not other people's voices, not the media, not the leaders, not anybody else around. God's voice must be the loudest. I'm not saying we don't listen to other people. I'm not saying you don't listen to the media. and Be good stewards of information. But at the end of the day, if any of it conflicts with God's voice, God wins. Right? God's voice has the final word in the heart of a humble believer. So again, just trying to be as practical as I can today. And I know we're not going to solve all the issues. I can't give you all the answers. We're trying to be as practical as we can. How do I walk humbly in the midst of racial injustice? Well, I think it starts here. Walking humbly starts with a heart that wants to get it right more than be right. Walking humbly starts with a heart that wants to get it right more than be right. And I think that can happen for us in three areas of our lives. Number one, personally. How do I personally walk humbly with the Lord? It starts with this right here. You need to read and you need to study God's word on this issue. I would encourage you, I would challenge you, go do a word study on the word justice in the Bible. Just go through and just read every verse that has the word justice in it. You don't need a commentary. You don't need extra notes. You don't need, just read the verses. And what does the Holy Spirit say to you when you read those verses? What's God's word say to us? And how should we respond? That's the truth that we need. That's how I humble myself before the Lord. I let his words speak to my heart on issues like this. I'm also going to make available to you another resource that I've compiled, a list of verses and articles and videos and all kinds of things that you can look at to help yourself start to study and learn more around this issue. I'll put that on Facebook later today. I'll put it in an email this week that goes out to our church family. But that's secondary. God's word is primary. So personally, read and study God's word. Secondly, relationally. Relationally, together, we need to listen and we need to lament with our black brothers and sisters. We need to hear their hearts. We need to hear their stories. Romans 12, 15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. They're weeping. They're hurting. And we need to weep and hurt along with them. Let me just tell you, it's not fun. (laughs) I've been working hard to do more and more of this for the last couple months, and it is hard. Because it is painful. But God's word tells me to do this. We need to own this issue with them. It's not just their issue, it's all of our issue. Because it's a gospel, biblical, justice issue. Listen guys, I'm not talking today about social justice or racial justice. I'm talking about biblical justice. Personally, relationally, thirdly, publicly. 
at some point it has to go past just the internal workings of my mind and my heart, and I have to go public with this issue. So how do we do it? How do we walk humbly with God publicly in this issue? I think we can see from the scriptures already that we need to make love our first response. Make love your first response. We have this saying in our country, you've probably heard it, um, innocent until proven guilty. How about we lead with that? That before we try to judge what happened in the news story or the video and who's right and who's wrong, how about we just lead with love on both sides and be humble and let God work out the rest. So again, practically, what's this mean? Let me tell you what it's meant for me. Practically, I think this means overcoming the yeah, but statements in our hearts and our minds. As I've spent the last couple months processing all of this, my own heart, my own mind, I've found, and I hate to even confess this, I'm ashamed to have to say this to you, but if it helps you, I want you to know. I have found that even in my own heart, my own mind, oftentimes in the past when I have seen or heard stories and videos and pictures of racial injustice, the first place my mind goes is, yeah, but... And then some exception as to what probably happened that justified what I just saw. Some excuse that lets me off the hook to not have to engage and feel bad and deal with the problem that I see in front of me. And I don't think that's what we're called to as Christians. That shouldn't be my first step. To assume that somehow they deserved it or that somehow it was justified. I shouldn't jump to the exceptions. I should jump to compassion. So if you're still not sure exactly what I'm talking about with some yeah, but statements or maybe you don't think you have this issue and maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. But let me give you a couple examples of ones that I've thought and some that I've heard. You can just ponder and just see if maybe these show up at all in your heart at times. Well, yeah, but these are isolated incidents. Well, first of all, even if that's true, even if that's a one-time occurrence, it doesn't make it any less injustice. Even if it's one person one time, that's still injustice that should grieve us and we should step into that. But if we're being really honest today, I think we've seen too much now to say that they are truly isolated incidents. And the only reason that most of us don't see it more is because it's not happening in our neighborhoods. It's happening in the neighborhoods that we don't live in. The ones where our black brothers and sisters live and they're seeing it every day and every week and they're trying to tell us And we're not always listening. Let me see if I can bring it home like this. Think about it this way for us as white people. How many isolated incidents of mistreatment would you have to suffer, you personally, at some store that you go to before you stopped shopping there? How many times would you allow yourself to be mistreated at a store before you stopped shopping there and you started telling other people to stop shopping there? 
How many times before you would call for that store to be changed or something to happen or it to be shut down or whatever was necessary so they could stop mistreating people? I'll just be honest. I know us. The number's not high. And we're way past whatever that number is in your head when it comes to incidences of racial injustice in our country. And so it needs to be dealt with. Here's another one. Yeah, but what about black-on-black crime? Well, first of all, I've had these conversations, and believe me, our black friends hate it too. They hate and grieve that that is a reality. But that is a completely different problem than what we're talking about. It's a problem, but it's a different problem. Yes, crime is a problem. And here's the reality. All of us sin against whoever is next to us. Blacks primarily commit crimes against blacks because that's who they're around. And guess what? If you look at the statistics, whites primarily commit crimes against whites because that's who we're around. It's not a it's a proximity issue. <laughs> and in no way does that erase the reality of racial injustice. Again, let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Let's say your kid goes to school and another kid at school punches your kid. Your response to that injustice against your child is not, oh, no big deal, their siblings punch them at home too, so we're all good. I've never heard a parent say that. Instead, no, it's, that's wrong and this is wrong and both need to be corrected even though they're different problems. How about this one? Yeah, but what about the people and the groups who are going too far and are out of control and are rioting and are trying to use all this for their own agendas? And yes, that is happening. Yes, in some cases that is true. There are some who are trying to use this issue in our country to push their own agenda and their own thing and trying to manipulate it for their purposes. 100%. And it's not okay. But the fact that they're doing that doesn't make racial injustice any less real or any less urgent. And it doesn't mean that everyone who speaks up and everyone who protests is wrong. There are some who are doing it well. If anything, to me, this just proves that we need even more people fighting against injustice the right way to overcome the voice of those who are doing it in the wrong way. It's just like in the church. All over our country right now on Sunday morning, we have churches who are preaching heresy and are manipulating the gospel and are, are leading people astray. But that doesn't mean that we give up on the gospel, that we abandon the church, that we abandon the mission. No, we go even harder to get it right to overcome the voice of those who are getting it wrong. And so the same thing should be true of racial injustice. Yeah, but I've experienced discrimination too. 
Yeah, you probably have. We all have. We've all had prejudice moments where someone has discriminated against us in some way. But what was yours for? Was it your clothes? The name brand you were wearing? Your hair? Your money? Your job? Those are all things that you have control of. You can change if you want. That's not the same thing as your skin color. You see, skin color is not a choice. It's a God-given trait of beauty. And it has a major impact on how we see ourselves. And so racial discrimination cuts deeper than other forms. Being called a loser because of your shoes doesn't come close to be called the N-word because of the color of your skin. Not the same thing. Yeah, but this is a political issue, so the church should stay out of it. (laughs) Well, I kind of already addressed that at the beginning, but let me just say it again in case you missed. Before this was ever a political issue, this was a gospel issue. And what's really frustrating to me, honestly, is in the, especially in the American church, evangelical church, we don't say that about any other issue of injustice. When it comes to the injustice of abortion, we'll talk about that all day long. The injustice of human trafficking or domestic abuse or religious liberty, we'll go after those all day. We have no problem speaking out when it's that. So why is this issue untouchable? Why is this the one that we decide to be quiet on? Friends, Christians, we don't start with politics. We start with the Bible, which says to stand against racial injustice. Last one. Yeah, but if we were all just colorblind and stopped talking about race, it would go away. First of all, it wouldn't go away. It might make it easier for you to ignore it, not have to think about it or not have to deal with it, but it would not go away. And God nowhere in his word ever tells us to ignore race or close our eyes to the beautiful diversity that he has given to us in humanity. God is not colorblind and he doesn't want us to be either. In fact, the Bible affirms and celebrates diversity as part of God's created order and perfect plan. Let me read you a section of Revelation, chapter 7, describing this perfect scene in heaven. Listen to this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lord. You know what that tells me? Race isn't going away. It's with us for all of eternity. It's not a problem that we fix or ignore. One 
one day we will be in the presence of God and we will all be one, one people before the Lord in all of our beautiful color and diversity. And it's that same oneness that we should be striving to achieve in the church, even here, even now on this earth, that doesn't mean being colorblind or ignoring the differences between us. We're one in Christ while celebrating and honoring the beautiful diversity that he's given us. We must walk humbly by allowing God to rule our hearts and our actions. We have to be humble enough to let God and his words speak to us and correct us where necessary so that we can walk with him on this issue. So again, the focus of this passage is worship. I cannot rightly worship God without pursuing his heart for justice. That's what Micah tells us. This reality of this text is what God calls all of his people to do. All of us. He's telling us here that a life of worship is greater than acts of worship. And that life of worship looks like this. Two moves towards men. Do justice, love kindness. One move towards God. Walk humbly. And when we put that together, it gives us a great grid of how we deal with racial injustice in our country today. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to the sin of racism and then do our part to speak truth against it by loving those who are hurt by it. But for us to change like this, for us to worship God the way that he wants to be worshipped is going to require that we walk in faith. Do you remember our definition for faith? Believing the word of God and acting upon it, even when I don't feel like it, because God promises a good result. If we're going to step into the hard conversations, if we're going to take the hard actions, the uncomfortable things, and do the heart surgery on ourselves, it's going to take faith. It's going to take us to believe God's word is true and act upon it because it's going to bring a good result. This is how we act against racial injustice as the church. I want to pray. We're going to sing a song of response. And again, I just want to, I just want to encourage you today. I'm almost positive there's some stuff I said today that you disagree with, you don't like. You have other counterpoints that you want to share with me or share with others. And I'm okay with that. And I'm happy to have those conversations. I hope we can have those conversations. Let's not run away. Let's not hide. Let's not build up walls. Let's be God's church and loving and humbly walk through this together and find a better solution on the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your patience with us as we wade through this hard topic. Lord, I pray that if anything I have said today 
if anything I have said is not of you and is not in line with your word, Lord, make it fall away immediately. Lord, take it from our minds, take it from our our hearts, Lord. If anything I've said is not right, if it's not of you, God, take it away. But what was from you, what was from your word, Lord, drive that down deep in our hearts today. Change us. Lord, give us, your church, the faith to trust your word and apply it to our lives and apply it in this area of racial injustice. Lord, we want to worship you in faith. We want to worship you in works. We want to be both as your word calls us. Help us. Holy Spirit, help us to trust you and to walk in faith with you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the grace and the gospel that makes all of this possible. We pray all of this in Christ's perfect name.